Good morning. As you know, God wrote the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone, and before Moses even got them down from the mountain, Israel had already broken them. And so in his anger, Moses literally broke them as well. God rewrote the law on two more stone tablets, and I guess Moses wanted to be careful with them, so this time he put them in the Ark of the Covenant, which is kind of like putting them in Fort Knox, because you couldn't open the Ark without dying. Today we don't know where the Ark is, we don't know where those two stone tablets are, I often watch Antiques Roadshow to see if they'll show up. (laughs) Moses hid the law, but it wasn't an out-of-sight, out-of-mind thing. His goal was this. He tells us in Deuteronomy 6, he says, These words shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your sons. Talk about them in your house when you walk, when you lie down, when you rise up. Write them on your hand, write them on your forehead, write them on your doorposts, write them on your gates. Now Israel was good about writing them in various places, but they never got them written on their hearts. And that's why Isaiah said this, and then Jesus repeated it, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They wrote them on various things. They got them on their lips so that they could repeat them, but they never got them into their hearts. Today, as we look around, we don't see them written very many places at all. We prohibit the Ten Commandments being taught in our classrooms. We've taken the Ten Commandments off the walls of our public schools. In many states, they're being removed from courtrooms and government offices. It's not even on people's lips today. Jay Leno does a segment called Ask the Man on the Street. He asked one young lady if she could name any of the Ten Commandments, and she said, is one of them freedom of speech? Now, that would be funnier if it wasn't so sad. And so as we look around today, we're not surprised that we live in a society that has lost its moral compass. We live in a society that we would have to describe as a values vacuum. The rule of our day is moral relativism. That's why you hear people say, if it feels good, do it. Anything goes. If 55% of the people approve, then it must be right. You hear people say, "What, what may be true for you is not necessarily true for me. According to the book, New Absolutes, they did a poll of Americans asking them if they agree with the following statement. There are no absolute standards for morals or ethics. And 70% of Americans agreed. No moral absolutes. Most people would nod in agreement with Ted Turner, who in his heyday told National Newspaper Association members in Atlanta that the Ten Commandments were obsolete. He said, quote, We're living with outmoded rules. The rules we're living under are the Ten Commandments, and I bet nobody here even pays much attention to them because they're too old. When Moses went up on the mountain, there was no nuclear weapons. There was no poverty. Today, the Ten Commandments wouldn't go over 
Nobody around likes to be commanded. Commandments are out. And then he proposed that we substitute them with 10 voluntary initiatives. We're going to take the Ten Commandments out of the ark, so to speak, and we're going to dust them off. And we're going to get very familiar with them because I'm going to spend one week on each commandment so that we talk about them. But what I'd like to do today ahead of time is just answer Ted Turner's question. Are the Ten Commandments outdated? Are they obsolete? Are they irrelevant? And what is their place in our lives? And maybe most importantly, how do I write them on my heart? Now, this is a very confusing subject, and it can be very complicated. And so my goal today is to make it so simple that I understand it. So I just want to focus on three issues with you this morning. And that is, number one, what the law doesn't do. What the law doesn't do, and I've laid out two things it does not do. Number one, the law doesn't save. Most people have the misconception that the law was given to save us. That's why if you ask someone on the street, why should God let you into heaven, the most prevailing answer you will get is because I do the best I can. Because I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, the problem with that answer is that the law was never given to save anybody. It never saved one single person, not even in Old Testament times, because it can't. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20 says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Galatians 2.16 says, A man is not justified by the works of the law. There is not one single person in heaven who got there by keeping the law. For two reasons. One, we can't keep the law. And the other, the law was not given for that purpose. It cannot save. So the first thing that the law doesn't do is it doesn't save. The second thing it doesn't do is that it doesn't sanctify. And that's a biblical word that means to be set apart. In other words, the law can't help you grow in your Christian life. Now, here's where a lot of people get confused. They say, all right, I was saved by faith. Now I guess I'm supposed to go back and try to keep the law. Well, the Galatian church thought that. And Paul wrote them a letter, and he had a name for people who thought that they got saved by faith and then went back and kept the law. And you know what that word was? Foolish. Listen to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Did you receive the Spirit? Did you get saved by keeping the works of the law or by hearing the gospel and believing? You say, well, that's easy. I heard the gospel and I believed. All right, notice verse 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You were saved by faith. Paul says, now do you want to grow, be perfected, come to maturity by keeping the law? No, that's foolish. It has to happen by the Spirit through faith. In fact, Paul not only tells us this is a foolish concept, he tells us it's a dangerous concept. 
Because a couple chapters later in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we read this. Paul says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Now, that's an important verse to understand. Jesus Christ has set you free, and Paul says, do not go back and be subject, put yourself under a yoke of slavery. What is the yoke of slavery? What is the thing that Jesus Christ has set you free from? It's the law. And Paul says, don't go back there and put yourself under that yoke that you couldn't keep when you weren't saved, and you're not to try to keep now that you are saved. In fact, notice what he says next in verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, what's circumcision? That's the sign of the old covenant, the sign that you're under the law. If you receive circumcision, Paul says three things are going to happen, and none of them are good. He says in verse 2, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Verse 3, and I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. So number one, Christ is of no benefit to you. Number two, if you put yourself under the law, you've got to keep the whole law. And then the third thing he says is in verse 4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I think that's probably the most misunderstood phrase in the Bible, fallen from grace. Because I hear it used all the time in the wrong way. People have the idea, I got saved and then I fell into sin and I have fallen from grace. Let me tell you something. You cannot fall from grace into sin. Because grace can handle sin. You fall from grace into legalism. You fall from grace into law-keeping. And a lot of Christians have the idea that to help me in my Christian life, I'll add all these rules and regulations. I'll add the law. That is not a safety net. That is a snare. And Paul says it is dangerous because law and grace are mutually exclusive. There is no such thing as grace plus law. It's either or. You are either all in law where it's all about me and my flesh or you are all in grace where it's all about Jesus and what he did for me. So the first thing is what the law can't do. It can't save and it can't sanctify. You say, well, then Dan, Dan, what can it do? Well, that's the second point, what the law does do. And I wrote down three things that the law does. Number one, The law shows us our sin. After telling us that the law can't save us in Romans 3.20, Paul tells us what it can do. It says, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law reveals to you what you look like morally. The law shows you your sin, shows you what you look like to a holy God. Now, this surprises a lot of people. You see, the law was not given so that you could keep it. The law was given so that you would flunk it. And it would show you not how good you are, but how miserable you are. What a failure you are. How you don't measure up to the standard of God. In fact, in James 1.23, we're told that the law is a mirror 
What's a mirror do? A mirror shows you what you look like. I prefer photos. They show me what I want to see. I say, that's a bad one. I tear it up. A mirror shows me exactly who I am. I assume we all looked in a mirror this morning. Some of you should have looked more closely. What do you see in a mirror? You look in the mirror and you say, hey, there's some dirt smudges on my face. Uh, there's a pimple on my nose. My hair sticking out. You look in a mirror and you see your flaws. And the Bible says that's exactly what the law is. It shows us our flaws. It shows us our failures. It reveals to us that we're sinners. And then it does a second thing. And that is it stirs up sin. This is an important verse. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. It says, The law came in that the transgression might increase. Now that's a surprising statement. Most of us think law, rules, regulations are there to decrease crime and decrease sin. But the Bible says the law actually increases sin. You say, how's that work? Well, let me give you an illustration. The, uh, we used to like Nestle's Quick around our house, and so we had bought it in the big buckets, paint buckets. You know, our kids would get out milk, and they would take the spoon, they would spoon the Nestle Quick into the milk. Well, when they threw the Nestle Quick into the milk, the milk still looked like milk because all the Nestle Quick went to the bottom. There was a two-inch thick, dark crud down there. So the milk still looked pretty good, but it had the crud in the bottom. Well, then they would take the spoon and they would stir up the milk and it would become chocolate milk. See, I would suggest to you that that's what the law does in our life. Some of us look pretty good. But if we're honest, down at the bottom of our life, there's that crud. And the law is the spoon that comes in and stirs that up. You say, how does that happen? Listen to Romans chapter 7. Paul says, I would not have known coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. Paul says, you know, I was doing pretty good with the law until I got to that last one. And God said, you shall not covet. And Paul said, you know, I hadn't even thought of that. That gave me an idea. And it stirred up sin inside of him. It would be the same if I say to you today, you know, we're going to establish a new law in our church. And the new law is this. No one is to think about pink elephants. Don't do it. Okay, see, I gave you an idea and you start doing it. That's the way the law is. The law, Paul says, I hadn't even thought about coveting. And God said, you shall not covet. And Paul said, that's a good idea. I think I'll try that. But it doesn't stop there, because the next phrase says, and it produced in me coveting of every kind. Not only did it produce coveting, but it stirred it up so that I started coveting in all kinds of ways. You know how that happens? Law provokes rebellion. If I tell you don't do something... Your human nature wants to say, oh yeah? You can't tell me what to do. 
I'll do that. And so it stirs up sin. You see people walking around sometimes. They got the little, unbeknownst to them, they got the little uh, sticky note on their back that says, kick me. I would suggest if you want to be more effective, put on their back, don't kick me. That's a law. And as Ted Turner says, nobody likes to be commanded. So if you tell us not to, we're going to be provoked to rebel against that. If you don't believe this, go home today. Put a sign on your yard that says, do not throw eggs at my house. It will stir up sin. Because it will give someone an idea and they will say, oh yeah? In fact, if somebody else doesn't do it, I'll do it. The law shows us our sin, the law stirs up sin, and the law does a third thing, which is the most important thing, and that is it sends us to Jesus. The law is a mirror. It shows you who you are, but that's all a mirror can do. A mirror can show you your problem, but it can't solve your problem. You look in the mirror and see that you've got dirt smudged on your face. You can't wash your face in the mirror. The law is a mirror. You cannot wash your face in the law. The law can't take your sin away. That's why most mirrors are right over the top of what? A sink. Because they're saying, you have a problem and there's where you get it solved. Listen to Galatians 3.24. It says, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. That's beautiful. The law shows you your sin, stirs up your sin, shows you you got this huge problem, and then it points you to the one who can solve that problem, which is Jesus Christ. It shows you you can't keep it. You're a sinner. You're destined for hell because you'll never make heaven by your own works. And it directs you to the one who can provide the salvation that you need. And then the third thing I want us to see is how the law is done how it's done. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. I didn't come to destroy the law. Now, a lot of people misunderstood that because Jesus came and he broke the Sabbath day and he hung out with sinners and he called the the Pharisees hypocrites and they were confused on his view of the law. And so Jesus says, I didn't come to destroy the law, I came to fulfill the law. How did Jesus do that? Let me give you three ways. Number one, the law's purpose is fulfilled in Jesus. What did we say the purpose of the law is? It's to show us that we're sinners and to point us to the answer in Jesus Christ. We know right after Jesus said this word, I didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it in Matthew chapter 5. You know what he said next? Read the rest of the chapter. He says this, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees in the religious world were rock stars. They were like the guys on the pedestal. They were the most religious people around. They were the leaders. And Jesus says, you've got to exceed their righteousness if you're going to get into heaven. And then Jesus, after that, takes the law and he ratchets the law up. 
He says, here's what you think the law is in terms of its expectations. I'm going to move it up here. Jesus said, you have heard in the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, but I say to you what? If you have hatred in your heart, you're guilty of murder. Ratchet it up. Jesus says, the law says you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you lust in your heart, you've already done it. You don't have to do it physically, you can do it in your mind. Jesus says, the law says you shall love your neighbor, but I say to you, love your enemy. Ouch. Higher expectations, higher bar. And then he gets to the end of Matthew chapter 5, and you know what he says? He says this. You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Keeps ratcheting the law up, and finally he says, here's, here's the deal. You just got to be as perfect as God. And you say, I can't do that. And Jesus said, to paraphrase, bingo. Exactly. I've been ratcheting the law up to show you the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is that it's a mirror, and I want you to see that you've got sin, that you're a sinner, that you cannot enter heaven on your own validity. You've got to come to me. So Jesus fulfills the purpose of the law. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled the penalty of the law. When you go to the Old Testament, you see that the penalty for breaking the law was death. Sometimes it surprises us. We go back there and find out a guy picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, and he was stoned to death. We find out that when a person cursed, they were stoned to death. Sexual immorality, they were stoned to death. When, when, a, when a child wouldn't obey its parents, the parents went to the elders of the city and said, he's not obeying me, and they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. The wages of sin is death. And so when we break the law, which we can't keep and we're all guilty of, the consequences, the penalty, is death. And Jesus fulfilled that by going to the cross of Calvary. Because at the cross of Calvary, he paid the penalty that you could never pay. He paid the debt you owe that you could never pay on the cross of Calvary. Now, when the Romans crucified someone, they would prepare a sign, and on that sign they would put the criminal's name, and then they would put the crime he was accused of, and they would walk in front of this criminal to the place of execution while he carried his cross, and it was sort of a deterrent to people because it had his name and the crime, and they thought to themselves, I better not do that or I'll be crucified. When they got to the place of crucifixion, they nailed that placard over the head of the person being crucified so that people could still see it. Well, when Jesus was crucified, he had a sign over his head, you remember? It said, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. You say, King of the Jews, that's not a crime. Well, that's because Jesus never sinned. He had no crime. He died for your sins. But in light of that illustration, listen to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, God canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. What's that? That's the law. And all the things you broke and all the things you owe because you broke the law. He canceled it out, and it says he's taken it out of the way, 
having nailed it to the cross. Jesus took all of your sins, all of the ways you broke the law, and he nailed those to the cross of Jesus Christ. I love that. So at the cross of Jesus, there was a little sign that had my name on it. And all the sins I have committed, do, sin, do commit, and will commit on that placard. And Jesus paid for it on the cross. So whenever you go back and read the Old Testament, stamped across the Old Testament in the blood of Jesus Christ is paid in full because he fulfilled all the penalty for your sins. And then the third way the, it's fulfilled is the potential is fulfilled in Jesus. And when I say the potential, the potential of the law is that if you could keep it, if you could obey it perfectly, the potential would be righteousness. What you couldn't do, fulfilling the law, Jesus has done, and he's done it in two ways in your life. One is positionally, and the other is practically. The first is positionally. Paul uses Abraham as an illustration of this in Romans 4.3, where it says, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed, and it was reckoned, that's an accounting term, God took his righteousness and put it into Abraham's account. That's really exciting. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, he not only takes your sin out of your account and nails it to the cross, he takes Jesus' righteousness and puts it in your account. That's why Jesus didn't just come for a long weekend. He could have come down on a Thursday, died on Friday, rose on Sunday, and went back. He didn't do that. He was here for 33 years. You know why? Because he was establishing a life of righteousness that would be put into your account. One of my favorite phrases in the Bible is that little phrase, in Christ. It's used 27 times in the book of Ephesians alone. I am in Christ, which means when God looks at me, he doesn't see me standing by myself. He sees me in Christ, clothed in his righteousness. And that's why the Bible calls us saints, which means holy ones. You say, Dan, I ain't no saint. Well, yes, you are. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ because he has taken his righteousness and put it in your account by grace. And then the second way this is fulfilled is practically and I don't have the time to develop it but if you read Romans chapter 7 it's an interesting passage a confusing passage because Paul says I love the law and it's good but there's nothing good in me that is in my flesh so you see Paul trying to keep the law and he's wrestling with it and he's saying the things I want to do I don't do things I don't want to do I find myself doing he's all frustrated because he's trying to keep the law and what is happening to him is the only thing the law can do. It shows us our, we're a sinner and it stirs up sin. So he finishes chapter 7 and he says, Who's going to set me free from this body of death? And the answer is Jesus Christ. And then you come to Romans chapter 8 in verse 2 and we read a, an interesting verse. It says, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus 
has set you free from the law of sin and of death. There's a new law. It's the law of freedom in the Spirit of God, and it has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Now, what is the law of sin and death? Ten Commandments. The old law. All it can do is produce sin in you, and all it can do is condemn you. And you have been set free from that. You say, Dan, now I'm really confused. Because if I've been set free from the law, am I to be lawless? Am I to be a hedonist? What am I supposed to do? Well, look at the next verse. Chapter 8, verse 3. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, what the law couldn't accomplish, which was make you righteous, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So what the law couldn't do, God did by sending his son to the cross of Calvary. Here's the result. Verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And how is it fulfilled in us? Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How is the law fulfilled in the life of a believer? It's fulfilled by the Spirit of God living out his life in me. And this is what God promised through Jeremiah so many years ago in Jeremiah 31, 33. He said, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant, the old covenant is written on stones. The new covenant is written on our hearts. And that's what I love today as we heard those four testimonies. They were all about changed hearts. They were all about the way God, by his spirit, came in and transformed them and made them to be new people. And that's why Paul could say in Romans 6.15, we are not under law, but under grace. What does that mean? We're no longer under the principle of law. We now operate under the principle of grace. The principle of law is that you work and you try to earn something. The principle of grace is that you simply believe and you receive a free gift. The principle of law says, if you do this, you will live. The principle of grace says, you live. I've given you eternal life. I've made you a new creation so that you can carry out the things that I desire for you to do. You say, well, Dan, what place does the law have in our lives today? Well, let me illustrate it this way. When I was in high school, I had a lot of rules. Uh, had to bring an excuse if I missed school. I, if I was in the hall, I had to have a hall pass. You know, there was bells. Do they still have those? It's been a while. Bell rings, I got to get up and go. Bell rings, I got to... A lot of rules in high school. I have graduated from high school. I have fulfilled the responsibilities of high school. And so I no longer have to have a hall pass. Uh, I, I no longer have to bring an excuse 
if I miss school because I'm not under those rules anymore. But there are rules that I had to obey in high school that still apply. I couldn't kill somebody in high school. Wasn't supposed to sell drugs, steal, lie. Well, see, even though I'm out of high school, those same principles still are at work in my life. But you see, the Bible tells me I have graduated from the law. The law has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, so I'm no longer under the law to have to keep it. Those same eternal principles of God apply to my life. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at the Ten Commandments, and as we go through it, you'll see that nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. So they're carried over in a different way in our life, but we walk by a different principle. We walk by the principle of grace. And it's all him. You see, the law says try harder. Grace says what Brandon said today. Die. I can't do it. I can't do it, so I have to die and let Jesus Christ resurrect me. That's the principle of grace. And so as we go through these Ten Commandments, my prayer is twofold. If you're not a believer here, my prayer is that the law will show you your sin and point you to Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer here, my prayer is that as you hear these truths of God, which are eternal, that they will resonate in your heart and you will say, by the Spirit of God, that's written on my heart, and I desire to do that to please him.